Chapter Twenty Five of Miss Frances Baird, Detective, by Reginald Wright Kaufman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The last of it. I called on Mr. Gray and sent off three telegrams to New York. Then I drove back to the Maples, browsed about the house for a short time on a certain mission, had a lengthy and, on the whole, satisfactory interview with Mr. Deneen, packed my trunk and saw it started for Black Springs on its way to the city. By the time all this was done, it was well on in the afternoon, and I sent George, the butler, himself to the gate to bring to the house a little party which I knew would be waiting there. They came, three friends of mine, together with Mr. Gray, Lawrence, and the district attorney, and they met me in the library. I took charge at once. Mr. I beg your pardon, but— said I to the district attorney. I can't quite recall your name. He flushed, but was very humble. My name is Kerr, he replied. Ah, yes, to be sure. Well, Mr. Kerr, I think that if you go to that window yonder, you will be able to see one of your county detectives, Mr. Laird, for a guess, somewhere in the shrubbery. He is not likely to get away, for as a matter of fact, he is engaged in watching me. Still, I wish you would send him after Mr. Kemp, and tell him then to stand close by, outside, as we may want him. Kerr obeyed like a dog which has been taught manners. Then I rang for the maid, and meeting her at the door where she was not likely to see my guests, although the chances were that she already knew they were on the premises, I asked her first to tell Mr. Deneen I was ready, next to say to Bromley that Mr. Kemp would like to see him in the library and then to inform Mrs. Deneen that I was waiting there to bid her good-bye. You see, I had resolved to have a full stage for my little denouement. Well, they came, almost in a bunch, and as soon as they were in, their faces full of wonderment, Mr. Gray stationed himself by the door. "'I have asked you all to come here,' I began, in a matter-of-fact way, oddly at variance with the tone of the gathering, "'because I am about to leave the Maples, and before going, I wanted to bid you all a respectful good-bye, and tell you the truth about the murder of young Mr. Deneen. I paused for effect, and looked about me. My friends from the town and the city were either stolid or alert, according to the degree of each man's knowledge of what I was about to disclose. Kemp was assuming a sneer in order to hide his growing consternation. Mrs. Deneen, the only person seated, for the rest were grouped in strangely constrained standing attitudes, about the room, was composed, but naturally interested. Her husband's face was set like that of a stone image, and Bromley was the picture of a frightened schoolboy. "'To take up the murder first, I resumed, and to leave the unpleasantness of farewell until afterwards, I will tell you how I have worked on this case. By a combination of much good luck and some good management, I have first of all fixed, almost to the second, the time of every important happening on the last night of young Mr. Deneen's life. I can even say to the minute what every member of this household, everyone under this roof, was doing between the hours of 2.39 and 4 o'clock on that night, or rather, on that Sunday morning. Thus I have been able, one by one, to eliminate the innocent, and am ready at last to accuse the guilty. Now for what happened. Lawrence Fredericks arrived here somewhat late that Saturday evening. He brought along with him that paste replica of the diamonds, and at once gave it to James J. Deneen, Jr. That gentleman put the false jewels in his own room, 
But later something happened. A certain thing was said to him by a person who grudged him the ownership of the real gems, and of much else besides, the certain person, in fact, who subsequently murdered him, and this made him fear for the safety of his newly acquired property. Accordingly, as soon as the guests had begun to depart, he went to his own room, did young Mr. Deneen, got the false jewels, put them in the gift-room where the real ones had been, and then went back to his own quarters, where he then secreted the real diamonds. Again I paused. The room was still as a Quaker meeting before a speaker is inspired. But Kemp was now smiling broadly. "'You don't agree with me, Mr. Kemp?' I said sweetly. "'I will when you show me the diamonds,' he answered. "'Anything to oblige,' said I. "'I got them out of the oil well of the double student's lamp in young Mr. James Deneen's room not three hours ago.' and at the word I took the Deneen diamonds from my breast and flung them on the center table. Well, that was effect number one. I couldn't help comparing it with the similar act of old Deneen on the evening preceding the murder, but there is no use going into details. It simply bowled down every pin in the alley. Only one had anything worthwhile to say, and that, you may be sure, was Mr. Kemp. Considering that you were at least in the next room to them when they were stolen, Miss Baird, he blustered. This doesn't look very well for you. Doesn't it? Oh, well, I'll have to stand that. But to resume our little fairy story, after he had secured the jewels, young Mr. James Deneen, being naturally in a pretty nervous state by this time, with all his faculties alert, heard someone talking in the gift-room, and returned there, thinking that he would catch in the act of theft the person against whom he was guarding his property. But he found only you, Mr. Kemp, and myself, and so returned at once to his own room, which he never again left alive. Then another person, who had been waiting until the coast should be clear, came out of a nearby room, and while you, Mr. Kemp, and I were downstairs getting Mr. Deneen Sr., stole the paste diamonds, in the belief that they were the real ones. That must have been, as you know, Mr. Kemp, at about three a.m. Well, the thief then probably heard us returning up the stairs, knew that the booty must be hidden immediately, and so left the house by the window and the porch roof. At any rate, and doubtless while on his way to hide the swag, the thief was seen and hailed from the house, replied, and then disappeared into the darkness. Now we'll skip the murder for a while, if you please, and trace the thief's movement for the next few days. The plunder was hidden somewhere on these grounds. It was necessary, however, to convert it into cash as soon as possible, for, if I make no mistake, Mr. Dooner, there were certain pressing bucket-shop people to be squared and margins to be covered within a week. I looked at my two acquaintances from the rival firm whom I had commissioned, you will remember, to look into a certain person's finances. They nodded, and Dooner, one of them, said, Twenty thousand short, and playing wheat for a raise, with the quotations going down every day, and a year-old pledge never to touch the market again. Very well, I went on. The thief didn't know how to dispose of that booty, and was in such despair over this that at last Ambrose Kemp was called into consultation with him. But just there Kemp forgot himself. "'That's a lie!' he shouted, and with his whole little frame a-quiver, would have bounded at me if Whitey Gilbert, now sporting a pair of false whiskers, hadn't been too quick for him and caught him a neat blow on the point of the jaw that sent him crashing to the floor." Whitey's was an old grudge, but I think there was force enough in that blow 
to work off all the interest and some of the principal. "'Whitey,' I said, as Kerr helped the half-stunned Kemp to his feet, and order was beginning to reassert itself, "'take off your whiskers, for Mr. Kemp may safely recognize you now, and tell us where you got that box that you had in your hand before you dropped it when you were so rude a moment ago.' "'Old Donovan's,' explained Whitey. "'He said Kemp had handed them over. Kemp thought they were real, but Donovan's too old a hand, and wouldn't give him only a thousand though I guess they're worth a good many times that. Genuine or fake. I picked up the box and poured out its contents beside the real gems. Only an expert could have told the difference. You see, I said, how much alike they are. The thief merely told Mr. Kemp that these were the real ones, and Kemp, foolishly neglecting to ask at what time they were stolen, accepted them as such. He gave the thief the address of the best-known fence in New York, but I saw the thief start away with that very box, and was seen in turn. The thief turned back. Consequently, at the proffer of a larger share than was originally agreed upon, Kemp started out to dispose of the jewels himself. I tracked him as far as 23rd Street and Broadway. From that point Mr. Gilbert's explanation, just given us, follows the Pace Diamonds to their destination. About the murder, Kemp is in absolute ignorance. I'll say that for him. He honestly thought Mr. Fredericks had stolen the false jewels, under the impression that they were the real ones, and had murdered young James Deneen. Mr. Kemp, this case, to borrow your own phrase, is as plain as a pikestaff. I have sworn out a warrant for your arrest, on the charge of receiving stolen goods. The fellow started to protest again, though this time with a weather eye on Whitey, but the district attorney cut him short. Come, come he said, zealous now to aid me in every possible way. You may think yourself lucky that you didn't know more, and that the charge isn't more serious. And now, I added, to name the real thief. Mr. and Mrs. Deneen, I beg you to nerve yourselves. These paste diamonds were stolen by your son Bromley. Well, the mother shrieked, and flung her arms about her innocent boy, as she called him. The innocent boy broke down and cried, and the hard old father put his head between his hands. It had been a difficult thing for me to do, but worse was to come, and as I had pretty well prepared Mr. Deneen in my recent secret interview with him, and as he had stood for justice at all costs, it was not surprising that he was the first to regain his self-possession and demand that I proceed. "'To come back, then, to the murder,' I continued. After Bromley had hidden the paste diamonds, which took him only a couple of minutes, he started back for the house, but as he reached the side porch he was again hailed from a window, this time in a whisper from his brother's room. There stood the murderer, who had heard Kemp, Mr. Deneen, and me in the gift-room, and feared to go out into the hall in bloody clothes. Bromley did not then know, of course, what had happened, though he became an accomplice after the fact, but he was tossed a certain blood-soaked garment and told to take it to the cellar and burn it. The murderer then got clear of the death-chamber, and Bromley obeyed orders. He failed, however, to destroy a fancy metal button, which I found afterward in the furnace, and which I have to-day learned belonged to a garment known to have been possessed by the murderer. Moreover, I nearly caught Bromley in the cellar, and though he got away, he saw that he would make his best entrance by returning as if he had been out for a stroll, 
which he accordingly did at 4 a.m. Now I have to go back to a matter of thirty-five years and to London. There, Mr. Deneen, and he doesn't fear to confess it now, he tells me, kept what pretended to be a public house, but was really a place for receiving stolen goods, down Wapping Way by the river. He amassed a little fortune in money, and bit by bit a collection of superb diamonds. These he never cared to sell, and they grew to the proportions which you see before you. At last he determined, for reasons of his own, to quit his former mode of life. So he converted everything except the diamonds into ready cash, and came to this country. But he had just established himself as a reputable citizen, with sound business friends and financial interests, which required of him an unblemished character. He had hardly done this, and fallen in love, too, with a charming lady who shall be nameless, because she has nothing to do with this case, when there turned up an old acquaintance from London. It was a woman, and she bore a child in her arms. She told Deneen that it was his child. She reminded him of certain letters in her possession. She pointed out that his handwriting would reveal his old life as a fence, and to cut a long story short, she married him, deviled him, and drove him all his life, and now sits here at this table. Of course, if I had been a man, I couldn't have done it. But I was more of a woman than she, and when I thought of how she had wrecked and tortured her poor wretch of a husband for all these years, how she had bled him and blackmailed him, how she had day and night held over his head the continued Damoclean sword of exposure, I was glad to think that he had at last given someone the power to tell the truth about her, glad to level a pointing finger at the dark, still handsome face toward which every gaze was now, of a sudden, breathlessly directed. As she sat there with the now softly sobbing Bromley on his knees before her, Mrs. Deneen took it, I am bound to say, like the really excellent gambler she had always been. Her face soon resumed its calm, her eyes waxed scornful, and she did not even forget her role of the grand dame. "'Do you mean,' she asked impassively, as she ran her slim, bejeweled fingers through Bromley's hair, "'do you mean, now that you have accused one of my sons of theft, to say that I murdered the other, my firstborn?' "'No,' I answered, "'and it was precisely that difficulty that proved my whole case against you. I had eliminated everybody but you and Mr. Deneen. Lawrence, Mr. Fredericks, might have been guilty, but as a woman I just knew he wasn't, so only you and your husband were left. I sounded him, Mr. Deneen, today, and he, without at first guessing your guilt, or what I was driving at, told me his story. Then you only were left. I knew that the worst mother couldn't kill her own grown son, and so I knew that James J. Deneen, Jr., was not your son at all. Don't you see? I cried, turning to the male portion of my awestruck audience. She palmed off on Deneen as his own, some child of the London gutters, whom she had brought over here for that purpose. And Deneen fell into the trap, as many a stronger and better man has done before him. For a while all went well. But then Bromley was born, really her own son and his. Day by day, and year by year, this woman had to sit and see an upstart, whom she dared not expose, growing into man's estate, when he must inevitably inherit the bulk of a fortune to which not only had he no shadow of right, but which belonged in toto to her own child. 
the accumulated hate of eighteen years was in her when at last she saw everything about to go to young james Deneen, as symbolized in the wedding gift of these diamonds she kept a smiling face she even deeded her townhouse over to the bridegroom-elect to her son james j Deneen jr then on that last night she went to him and told him the truth thinking that he would acquiesce in her proposition to take a large sum and disappear perhaps if she would agree not to tell mr Deneen the truth she threatened that were she to disclose her secret to her husband he would cut them both off if possible without a penny but young james called her bluff he knew her saw that her present form of living had become indispensable to her and understood that at her age she would never dare to begin life anew he saw that his secret was her secret that she dared not inform on him and he heeded her only so far as to attempt to protect his diamonds over the night she went to his room to argue and to plead mr Deneen will identify that button from her dressing-gown and the other evidence is all conclusive they quarrelled and she cut his throat that ended it i do not believe in long drawn-out conclusions to any story at any events the Deneen trial is now a matter of record the woman as you will recall is at present in the asylum for the criminal insane where our benevolent commonwealth sends prisoners whom it has not the heart to hang bromley released because he turned state's evidence from the charge of being an accessory after the fact is hidden on a wyoming ranch and i for my part have told enough of this event in my adventurous history to explain why lawrence fredericks was married to evelyn bladesdale in eighteen hundred and ninety four and why i always somewhere carry set with a ruby and two diamonds a certain pretty but old-fashioned ring the end end of chapter twenty five end of miss frances baird detective by reginald wright kaufman